0: there we go all right so uh, we have one more assignment due and then we got a little bit of a break um, for this class at least the article review is due today Uh, meaning of course if you've got it you can give it to me uh, before you leave today or you can submit it up on uh, D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow morning for full credit and I will do my best to go through those and have them back to you, if not Wednesday, by, the follow- by Monday of next week. So I should, with only 10 of them to read, I should be able to get those uh, back to you pretty quickly. That way you're ready for the next one, which will come up in a few weeks. Um, after that, we have second homework. Right now tentatively due October 2nd, assuming we stay on schedule. Uh, exam-wise, we should be fine. Homework-wise, I'm not sure if we'll get through everything. So I'm going to give it to you so you can go ahead and start on that. There you go. Two, one, and one, and two. There we go. So homework is due October 2nd. Again, tentatively, if if we run further behind than I expect, We actually have two actually normal weeks for the first time, (laughs) these next two. So we should be pretty well caught up, uh, catch up the chapter right now. We're behind because of Labor Day and get ahead. I don't know if I'll get everything done by the second, but we should be pretty darn close if not. So exam wise, we're right on schedule and I really wanna get the exam in then because then we have that fall break. Where we miss the we miss a we miss well we miss a Wednesday that's a Monday and then the Monday we come back is a Wednesday. So if you have any classes that only meet or one or the other that week Wednesday is actually a Monday. If you know what I mean. So if you had a lab if you had a lab that met on Monday it would meet on Wednesday that week. So if not if you're, for our class it really doesn't make any difference. Um, we're here the same either either day so i wanted to get it done get the exam done so you're not dealing with it over break have it finished and be done with the second exam and then solar observations i will have you turn in a copy of your data sheet again i do call it solar observation two that doesn't mean turn in two <laughs> hopefully by october you're getting you're having like five or six on your data sheet you know if you just have two on it at that point you're running way behind because we're only a little over a month and a half away from getting the project finished so I call it the second, it's the second time I'm collecting them. But it's not looking that, oh, I'm getting my second observation. Hopefully, you've got a few more than that by that time. All right. And then I had the key points again for you for the next exam. So I went ahead and printed those for you. Since there's a small enough group, I just went ahead and printed you guys copies. So again, like the first exam, feel free to take notes on them. Uh, Anything you want to write on them for the exam, have them with you during the exam, that's perfectly uh, acceptable. So this covers chapters 5 and 6, which we'll be finishing up this week, hopefully. And then we skip chapters 7 through 14, which is the solar system for this class. And then we do do our little bit of the solar system, which is chapters 15 and 16, which is the sun which if you count the mass is 99.8% of the solar system anyway, so we're actually covering most of the solar system. We're just ignoring all those little tiny rocks like Earth and, you know, all the other planets. So you can use that during the, during the exam. Um, I did give your labs and exams back. Um, I, ha- I keep your original answer sheet, so I still have that, but it should print out a copy of it for you, so you should see a copy of it there. The only thing is it does that in color, and I don't print them in color. So if you're looking at the ones that are actually marked or highlighted on your answer sheet, the ones where you see like a whitish circle on them, those are the ones that were correct. Those are the ones with a green circle on them saying yes, they were right. Anything that's blank actually has a uh, red circle on it which looks pretty much the same color and does not show there. So there should also be a little C to the left of the number that is correct and kind of a faded X through anything that was incorrect. So it should show you that, but I did have it print out the whole answer key for you. So if you want to confirm what you did wrong, it tells you uh, what the answer key was is the first column. What you gave was the second column. And then it'll also give you whether it was correct with a C or an X. Um, There were two questions that I ended up throwing out. So if you actually try to add up what it tells you got here, ignore the percentage it gives you. The percentage is meaningless because five of those questions were extra credit, it doesn't know that. It's trying to grade everything out of 35. So even if you got all 30 of them right and didn't do the extra credit, it would say you got 30 out of 35, even if you might have gotten all of the questions that counted right. So I did, so don't worry about those. It's the total points that matter. And I added two points to everybody because there were two questions, well, that I did not, I didn't feel, after looking at them, what I did is I looked through questions that more than half the class missed which there were a handful of them. It wasn't a whole lot. And there were two of them that I looked at. There was one I know I did not talk about it at all. And in fact, that showed because it's the one, if you look on there, that zero percent got right. So Which is interesting because even randomly you'd think one person would have put down the correct answer. Uh, didn't work out that way for this one. Uh, it was question number 19. Uh, the, uh, what was the question on it again? Pull up the that was the one that refers to the measurement of rotation of a body around a fixed point, which is really talking about angular momentum. But I never mentioned angular momentum. I mean, I, I'd re- I think I would remember if I had said that, so I just gave everybody an extra point for that one. And then the other one that I didn't really go over as much, and we'll cover it later in the class, was number eight. Um, people did a little bit better on that. I think two people got it. So not much better, but a little bit better, uh, which was asking about the galaxy clusters. I may have vaguely talked about them, but not much. We're going to cover it. We kind of did that whole introduction. I went through a lot of stuff. And I did go ahead and throw that one out as well. If you got it right, it stayed right, so you got a bonus point. If you got it wrong, you ended up getting a point for it, so you still got an extra point on it. So your total points added up. Whatever points earned, you earned on the multiple choice, plus 2 and then whatever you got on the the essay portions, which should show at the top of your grade. I think I wrote that in green essay. You got something out of 20 points. The multiple choice was out of 30, and then those are added up to give you your total score. So if you did great on it, wonderful. If you did not do so well, don't go shred it or burn it yet. Keep it, because when I make up the final, I take questions from these exams. So this is what you study for the final. It'll be the new material plus the four exams. I mean, I like the final being cumulative, but I don't want you to feel like you have to go back and review notes and everything else. So if I didn't test Janet on here, it's not going to be on the final for these chapters. So essentially, that's, that's what you need for the multiple choice. So save it, know your, know your answers. I can't guarantee that the questions, that the answers order might move around. So what the answer for the question might have been B, and now it might be C. That may change but the actual question will be word for word exactly what it is with the same set of, set of answers for you for the final. So review them, make sure you have those to study and that's a good thing if there's something you're sure you're gonna forget, right, have it on your key points for the final. All right, so that's what's coming up, a little bit more there than usual, but any questions? All right, well, move out to our picture for today then that up, look at our picture for today. Uh, today is the autumnal equinox. So this is showing, this is a picture showing the Sun on three different days of the year. One of them is actually the vernal equinox or the first day of spring. That's the middle one here. And the other is the first day of summer and the first day of winter. Now the equinox is when a couple things happen. First of all the Sun rises Directly in the east, we always say the sun rises in the east. It rises generally in the east, but not exactly east, except on two days of the year, the two equinoxes. So today the sun rises directly east and will set directly west. And it's also the time when the length of the day and night are equal. That's where the equinox term comes from, equal day and night, equinox equal night, uh, that the day and the night are of equal length. So today is the day we have 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of uh, darkness. Don't go look up the times because you'll find out that's wrong. If you actually look up the times for today for York, um, i had sunrise at 6.55 and sunset at 7.03. That doesn't sound equal, does it? That's about ten eight minutes off. Well, that's because the sun, the atmosphere, will refract the sun or bring it up a little bit above the horizon. So the sun will actually rise a little bit earlier than it would if we didn't have an atmosphere. The sun will actually set a little bit later because the atmosphere is pulling it up. It's bending, the, it's bending the light of the sun. So it won't be till Wednesday or Thursday that we actually get a day that is exactly 12 hours. Now, if we had no atmosphere, it would be today. So it's not that anything different about the sun or anything different about the e- what we mean by the equinox. It's just that the earth will bend that light. Our atmosphere will bend that light going up. But a couple of other things this shows. This is the path of the of the sun across the sky during the summer. So what they did was just take pictures every how many of them they got there? Probably every uh, half hour, 45 minutes or so. Just take an image of the sky and watch the sun as it moved across the sky. You've got a nice fisheye lens. You're looking at the entire sky, the entire horizon there, and you can watch the sun get up high in the sky and then set. So in the summer, right, we talked about seasons already, sun gets very high in the sky, and it's in the sky for a long time. Look at how many images there are of the sun on this day. They're the same from here to here to here. They took, the same, they took the, whatever the time was, and I didn't look up what they took them, it's exactly the same. If it was 45 minutes, it was taken every 45 minutes, regardless. So, sun was in the sky for a long period of time. That's the first day of summer, it's high in the sky, it's in there for a long time we get much warmer weather. On the first day of winter, well, we only get a handful of them, right? Sun rises late and sets early. So we get the sun in the sky for a much shorter time. And it's not very high, right? If you ever watch the winter sky, watch the sky, watch the sun in December, when you look at it, it's going to be very low even at noon. Whereas in June, it's way up high in the sky. So this is just images, and what they did was just have the one image taken and then, put, then take all of these images. You know, One day of the year, take a bunch of images. A few months later, on the equinox, take some more. And then finally, on the winter solstice, take some more. The autumnal equinox, I said this was the vernal, the first day of spring, would be exactly the same as this. There would be no difference. It's the only difference between the autumnal and vernal, vernal equinox is how the sun's moving. Today, it's moving from the northern hemisphere of the sky down to the southern hemisphere of the sky, right? We're heading towards winter. Sun's going to be lower in the sky. In March, sun's moving from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere. It's going to get higher in the sky. But other than that, it would be that if you watch this and took it over the course of a year, you'd just see on summer, you'd have it here, and it would get lower and lower and lower and lower. There would be the first day of uh, fall and then down to winter, and then it would start to move back up to spring, to summer, and it would just kind of bounce back and forth between those two. All right, questions? All right, well, we are ready to get back, and we should get ourselves back on track here. We were almost done with the first section of Less, less Than 5. Uh, where is it from there? In fact, I had just talked about temperature, as I recall, an absolute zero, and I said radiation laws, I didn't want to try to squeeze in in the last four or five minutes that we had to finish that day. So so even though it's only one slide, it's the one I want to spend a little bit more time than that on. So two radiation laws that we want to look at. First of all, I want to define what we mean by what is called a black body radiator. A black body radiator is an ideal, it's an ideal concept of something that is a perfect radiator. Which means I'm not a good example of this because I'm reflecting light to you. A perfect black body would not reflect light. It would absorb light. So the tabletops would be a much better example of a black body. They absorb all of the radiation that hits them. So all the light from, the, from that's hitting them is absorbed. If you've got a black shirt on, right? very good at absorbing all the light. You don't want to wear that black shirt in the middle of summer, generally. You tend to wear a light-colored shirt because it reflects more of the light off of you. So a black body is something that absorbs all of the light coming into it. So things like the desktops here would be a good example of a black body radiator because they're not reflecting a whole lot of light. They also emit, emit energy. But when they emit energy, it depends only on their temperature. So I'm giving off light. I'm reflecting light depending on lighter-colored shirt is reflecting some some light to you, pants (coughs) reflecting different colors of light, different wavelengths of light to you. A black body will give off a range, a spectrum, that looks something like this. It'll have a peak where it's giving off most of its energy, and then it will trail off at shorter wavelengths very quickly and a little bit slower at longer wavelengths. So that means that, yes, the tabletops are giving off energy. But they're very cool temperatures. In order to see things like visible light, you've got to have temperatures that are thousands of Kelvin. Well, you wouldn't want to be sitting on those tables if they were thousands of Kelvins. You wouldn't be sitting at them because, well, we wouldn't be here if they were even on the cooler end here at 3,000. You know, that would be easily enough to vaporize everything here. So they're not this cool. They're actually down in the few hundred Kelvin range, which means they give off infrared light. We give off infrared light. If you have night vision goggles, they're adjusted to see the wavelength that a person, body temperature, would give off. Well, that's a little bit warmer than the temperatures of the table, they'd be giving off an even different wavelength. But they still are giving off some energy. If you could look at the right wavelengths in the infrared, they're glowing. They are giving that off. They're absorbing the energy from the lights, and they're giving off wavelengths based only on their temperatures. And in this case, it's the surface temperature of the star that is important. So when we look at a number of stars, a hotter star may be giving off a lot of its light in the green. This doesn't go up to even the hottest stars. We'll talk about stars. Our sun is actually a little bit hotter than that. Uh, A cooler star might peak in the yellow or orange or red or even the deeper red portion of the spectrum. That depends on its temperature. It's a way of being able to measure the temperatures of the stars. So the two laws that we come up are the Stefan-Boltzmann law and Wien's law. Stefan-Boltzmann's law tells us that for two otherwise similar black bodies, one with a higher temperature is going to have a higher intensity of radiation being given off. At any wavelength, whatever wavelength it's emitting, and that's shown in these curves here, the green curve, which is a higher temperature, never crosses the other ones. So this one may be giving off relatively more red light compared to greens and blues way over here, but even the amount of red light it's giving off is a lot less than this green green star was giving off at at that same wavelength. So even though it might be giving higher percentage of its light in the red, it may look red to us because it's giving off mostly red light. The hotter stars will look bluer, but the overall, no matter what wavelength we look at, whether it be very short or very, very long, the higher the temperature, it's always going to give off more of that type of radiation. So that's what stefan boltzmann law is telling us. The higher the temperature, the higher the intensity. Anywhere, not just where the peak is. The PS, the peak is going to be higher as well. But no matter where I look on this curve, and I could extend this out to much, much longer wavelengths, the green curve will never cross. And in fact, all these curves have exactly the same shape. So they all look identical. If you zoom into this one, it looks exactly like this, just at a much, just at a uh, longer wavelength. So that's Stefan-Boltzmann law. Uh, Wien's law tells us where that peak is. So Wien's law says the higher the temperature, the shorter the peak wavelength. So remember, red light, very long wavelengths. Blue light is shorter wavelengths. So the high, as you increase the temperature, where the peak is does change. So it goes from maybe in the very red out here to a little bit brighter red, to an orange, to a yellow, to a green. If you could keep going, you'd have blues and violets. As things get hotter and hotter, they go to shorter and shorter wavelengths, where the peak is. They also get brighter. That was Stefan Boltzmann. But the temperature is also... What's important? The temperature tells us where the peak is going to be. So if we measure the spectrum of a star, if we measure its brightness at a couple different points here, kind of map out this curve, we can figure out where the peak is. That tells us the temperature. It's a way to determine the temperature of a star. We can't go stick a big thermometer in it. First of all, how do you get it there? Second of all, how does it not vaporize at thousands of degrees? What What material do we have that can stand up to 5,000 degrees? and measure the temperature. It's not going to happen. So it's a way to figure out the temperatures of the stars and how hot they are. And you can do that just by looking at a star. If you look at the image of a star in the sky or on an image, if it looks a little red, it's a cooler star. If it looks blue, it's a hotter star. Now we tend to think of as blue as cool, but remember blue is shorter wavelengths. That means higher energy. So really hot stars actually put most of their energy out in the ultraviolet, even beyond visible. We can't see most of their energy. Really cool stars, and there are stars even cooler than this, put out most of their light in the infrared. So what we see with visible light is only a little portion of what is there. Stars like our sun, well, they pretty much peak and most of their light is given off in the visible spectrum. Maybe not surprising, that's how our eyes have adapted to see visible light. We see the light that the sun is giving us. So our eyes have adapted over uh, centuries, over millennia, to be able to vis- see the light that the sun gives us. If we lived in a, uh, around a star that was much cooler, we'd probably see infrared and we wouldn't see blues or purples at all. Wouldn't, our eyes wouldn't be sensitive to them. If we lived along a really hot star. We'd see the blues and the violets and maybe ultraviolet, but wouldn't really see reds and oranges. It's a matter of what our eyes have become accustomed to. All right, so that's why I want to take a little more time on that and then finishing up the first section here. And really what I talked about two times ago, plus the, now this electromagnetic spectrum is more than just visible light. So when we talk about this and in the next chapter when we talk about telescopes, there's a lot more than just the rainbow of light that we see. There's all sorts of things we can study, and that really opens up a wide range of things to study. There are stars that are better studied in the ultraviolet. If you remember from our telescope thing, we have got to get up above the atmosphere to see most of the ultraviolet. There are stars that are really bright in the infrared. Well, you also want to get above the atmosphere to see a lot of the infrared portion of the spectrum. Uh, We talked about light being kind of this unusual, have this unusual property that behaves simultaneously as a wave and a particle. And then we talked about the radiation laws that give us an idea of how things vary with temperature. All right, questions? All righty, well, let's look at making a spectrum. So how do we go about making a spectrum? We've seen a prism, you send white light into it, that light gets bent. At the bo- boundary here, it gets bent, and it, the be- amount of bending depends on how, what the wavelength of light was. So shorter wavelengths get bent more, longer wavelengths get bent less, so that starts to spread it out into the colors of the rainbow. And when you leave the prism, red light again gets bent less, and blue light gets bent more, so when you look at the light over here, you actually have all the colors of the rainbow. You've only got a couple shown there, but you'd see the red, orange, yellow, uh, green, blue, and violet. You'd see the entire spectrum there. So a prism is one example of something that can do that. Um, Astronomers also use uh, a diffraction grating. If you've ever seen these, they're like a little slide, and you can't see the lines on them, but they're etched into them, or thousands and thousands of little lines. They behave the same way. They're a lot easier to use than a big chunk of glass. Um, That's still used in some cases, but for the most part, they'll use something much thinner, an easier piece that will split up the light. But it does the same thing. It splits the light. The light bends by differing amounts depending on the wavelength and spreads it out into the colors of the rainbow. So we can learn, right, by studying the spectrum of a star, just by looking at the light of a star, we can get some nice pictures of it But by splitting things into the colors of the rainbow, we can get a lot more detail and we can actually learn a lot more. Our black body radiation, we can learn about the temperatures. told you a little bit about that. We can learn about the brightness. We can measure how much intensity is coming at a certain wavelength and say how bright the star is. We can say you've got a brighter star or a fainter star. Um, You can learn about something about the temperatures of the star. However, well, we can also, when we start looking at the lines, when we split it up into the spectrum, then we can start to learn some other things that we can't learn about from just that black body curve, just that curve that I showed you at the end of the last section. We can learn about the compositions. What is a star made up of? Well, just as we can't go stick a thermometer in the star to measure it, we can't go get a sample of the star. We can't send a probe to the sun, get, dig a sample out of it and bring it back. Again, 6,000 degrees, that'll vaporize pretty much everything we have. And that's 6,000 6, Kelvin. That's, that's Celsius. We are talking Fahrenheit. You're up to closer to 10,000 degrees in terms of the temperature. So we can learn about the compositions. What are they made up of? And that's what we're going to look at kind of in the rest of this uh, in the next section is how we can learn, use this to learn about that. And the last section here, we can learn about the velocities, how fast are the stars moving? How do we measure how fast a star is moving? That's something we can do by looking at, its, at spectral lines when we split the, it up into its component colors. Because what we find is when we look at a spectrum of a star, we generally don't see a perfect rainbow like this. Ideally, if you take some white light and you look at that, if you go out in the sunlight, send sunlight through a prism and you look at it there, you're going to see something that looks pretty much like this. You're going to get all the colors violet there through red here. So very short wavelengths through very long wavelengths. So this is an example of what we would call a continuous spectrum. It's generally not what we see. This wouldn't tell us a lot. This would allow us to learn things like the temperature. This would be that black body spectrum, but instead of showing it as a graph where it went up, peaked, and went down, instead, it's showing it as just the rainbow of colors. Now, it does include everything, so it actually includes ultraviolet, which would be out here. Can't see ultraviolet. It's there, we can have detectors there to detect it, but our eyes aren't sensitive to it. It's got infrared over here. Again, our eyes are not sensitive to that, but it includes everything. So for visible light it's the red through the violet that we're used to and there's no breaks it's nice and smooth going all the way across this is what is emitted by what we call a black body source so the tabletops if we could measure their spectrum yes it would be all way out here in the infrared but you can get detectors that could detect how much infrared it's emitting you could measure it at different wavelengths and you could actually measure that uh measure that curve it would look a lot like the ones I showed you earlier. This, the, that would be giving off a, um, a continuous spectrum. Another one of this would be the uh, incandescent bulbs, right, the older ones with little filaments, little metal filaments inside that you heat up. And that's what happens with the, those with the incandescent bulb. You put energy through it, put electricity through it. You heat up that little filament to very high temperatures, and it glows. And that gives off... Some visible light, a lot more infrared, right? Because they give off a lot of heat. You feel a lot of it as heat, which is a lot of infrared radiation as well. Um, and stars. Stars are a good example of a black body. They're glowing, but they're glowing by their own light. So they pretty much absorb all the light, and they give off light based on their temperature, but remember, their temperatures are much hotter. So they're giving off. Temperature. They're giving off light in the visible portion of the spectrum. So a star, if we ignore its atmosphere, is pretty much another good example of a black body object. Absorbs all the radiation that hits it, gives off light only depending on its temperature. So a continuous spectrum is one type, but we don't see it very often. Stars have atmospheres. That affects their spectrum. So we don't see it a whole lot out in, out in space. Another type... And I should have said, did I say that? I didn't say this, I'm sorry. This is formed by a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. That takes care of just about everything, doesn't it? Solids, the tabletops, liquids would be giving off a continuous spectrum, or a very dense gas, like the sun, would be a dense gas, giving off a continuous spectrum. The only thing that's left is a diffuse gas, so a gas that's more spread out. This would give off only specific wavelengths, So if you look at a neon sign, and you could look at the spectrum of that, you wouldn't see a continuous spectrum. You would not see all the colors red through violet. You would only see very specific wavelengths. You can put that light through the same prism that you put the sunlight through, and what you're going to see is just specific lines. Now, these aren't the lines of neon. These are actually the lines of hydrogen. But it is one example of the kind of thing that you'd see. If you looked at neon, you'd see a different pattern of lines this is how we're going to be able to learn what things are made up of. Because each element has a different pattern that we see, a different fingerprint, if you think of it. So hydrogen gives off one set of lines, helium gives off another, carbon gives off a different set, iron gives off a different set. So if we look for patterns and we match up these lines, then we, when we see this pattern of lines in an object, we know that there's hydrogen there. Doesn't really tell us how much. There's some other things we have to do to figure out how much of it is there. But this is the type of spectrum that you would get from an excited gas, so a diffuse gas, neon gas in a tube. Or other types of gases in a tube that are then heated up. We also see it, we've seen pictures of a few nebulae that glow. That's what we see. That's where we'd see this as well astronomically. Diffuse co- clouds of gas would give off what we call an emission spectrum. So if we took one of those nebulae that we see, they tend to look red, that's all due to this one line. And you take their light, put it through a prism, you're gonna see this line, blank, nothing, nothing, then you'll see this line and this line and this line. That one's the strongest, so that dominates. That'll give you most of it and give it that red color. But that would tell us that hydrogen is there. Now, things are a little more complicated than that. There's nothing out there that's made up of one element. So it's going to be more complex than that. You might have hydrogen and helium. Well, then you're going to have the two overlapping, and you have, you're not going to get this. Oh, pretty, matches up. We know there's hydrogen there. Or it's all made of carbon, or it's all made of neon. That's not going to happen. But you can do different types of analyses to be able to figure out and look for this pattern within the spectrum. So that's an emission spectrum. The last type, which we also see quite a bit, is an absorption spectrum. Now, since we've already taken care of solids, liquids, dense gases, and diffuse gases, not much left, except for a combination of these two. And this is the type of spectrum that we see when you see a continuous source, like a star or a light bulb, and you look it through a cooler gas. So if you had an incandescent bulb and had a cloud of gas or had looked at it through a tube that had a certain type of gas in it, that gas would remove specific wavelengths. So we get what we call a dark line or absorption spectrum. Absorption spectrum sometimes called a dark line spectrum. So you can see that it matches the continuous spectrum. It's got everything from the reds through the violets here, just um, uh, just like a continuous spectrum, but there's bits missing. So there are lines missing, and in fact, one of them, where is it, this line right here, that is actually that hydrogen line. That tells us there's hydrogen in the sun. I know I don't expect you to match that up, but you can actually look at some of these. You know That one happens to be hydrogen. These, these lines are sodium. There's sodium in the sun. Uh, there's calcium lines over here. Yeah, you don't need to know the exact details as to which is which. I'm not going to be testing you on that but we can find out what's in the sun. If we see a line of sodium or calcium, we know that there is some sodium or calcium in the sun. Again, it doesn't tell us how much. And in fact, when we look at the sun, it's 90% 90 hydrogen. 90% of its atoms are hydrogen. 10% are helium. That doesn't leave much else. Everything else that's left over can still be important. It can still give us some lines like sodium, and uh, calcium and iron and, you know, other elements that are present in the sun. In fact, you can find the vast majority of the naturally occurring elements are found in the sun if you search for them. Sun's a little bit easier because we can spread out its spectrum. It's got so much light, we can spread out its spectrum into great detail. Harder to do with a star. You don't have as much light from it. Right? Even a bright star is not getting us near the brightness of the sun. So these we see by a lot of astronomical objects, stars, planets, with anything with an atmosphere would be giving off this type of spectrum. Now when we talk about planets, we're talking about infrared, remember. The visible light you see from a planet is just reflected light. That's different than the light that the planet is actually giving off. So when we see Jupiter or Mars or our moon, we're seeing the light reflected from the sun. That's just sunlight. Only reason they're different colors is because what colors they happen to like to reflect. So, if I'm wearing a blue shirt, it means my shirt doesn't like blue. It's reflecting the blue light to you and absorbing the other colors. If I'm wearing a green shirt, then it's reflecting the green light to you. Well, that's what the planets do. The surface of Mars happens to not like red light. So, it's the red planet because it's reflecting the red light from you. Is that a question? Yeah. Yeah. So... The, not the atmosphere, but actually raindrops. raindrops. It's raindrops in the atmosphere, so the sunlight bounces off a bunch of raindrops and clouds and everything that are all kind of lined up together and gets all those, and it combines together. That's why you get kind of the sun over here and the rainbow on the other side as it's gone through. All of those that kind of, all those water droplets are still in the atmosphere right after a rainstorm. But that is visible light, though. Like that is visible light, yeah. Right. That is visible. I mean, it would have... The sun gives off some ultraviolet, it would be there, but but for the sun, most of it is visible light. There are small amounts to the uh, the other side. Okay, so three types of spectra there. And again, I've talked a little bit about how they're formed. I kind of wanted to show it again in a summary form here, because in this case, I'm giving it in terms of the radiation laws, Kirchhoff's laws which tell us when each of these. Now I've given you given you the information already. Right? A continuous spectrum, solid, liquid, dense gas. Actually relatively rare in astronomy because usually we get one of the other two. An emission spectrum is a diffuse gas. So a gas cloud, a nebula, an atmosphere of something would be if you're exciting that, that would give off very specific lines. And then there's an absorption spectrum that is when we see the continuous source and look at it through a gas cloud. So for our sun, this would be the sun itself. This would be the atmosphere of the sun around it. And as the light from the sun travels through that, certain wavelengths are absorbed. Now it doesn't matter whether it's absorption or emission, wavelengths are the same. So if you excite hydrogen gas and cause it to glow, it gives off a specific red line. If you look at a source and send, it, send its light through hydrogen gas, it will absorb that same exact wavelength. So that's why that wavelength acts as a fingerprint. It's not going to change. So when we see that wavelength, especially when we can see a pattern of lines, then we can tell that that element is actually present there. So it's one of the ways that we can actually learn what things are made up of. I can't hear, I can't tell you anything about what this star is made up of. Because that continuous spectrum is going to be the same, whether it's hydrogen heated to that temperature, or iron heated to that temperature, or gold heated to that temperature. It doesn't matter. It's going to give off a continuous it's going to give off a continuous spectrum. It doesn't tell you anything about what it's made up of. It's exactly the same. It just depends on the temperature, and that's one of the keys to what we mean by a black body. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. It could be made up of anything. You could have a hot ball of hydrogen and a hot ball of helium with nothing else. If those are heated up and they're acting as a black body, they're gonna give you the same continuous spectrum if they're heated to the same temperature. It's when you start getting gases around them that we start to see the lines. So either looking at the gas itself or looking at the gas through the light source. That's when we start to see the lines, and those are the ones that are really important for learning what things are composed of out out in space. So, finishing up here again, Uh, Spectra we can use to determine the properties. We can use, by splitting the light into its component colors, we can determine the properties of stars, galaxies, nebulae. This is how we learn about everything. We can't experiment with stars. Uh, We can't experiment with galaxies. All we can do is look at the light that they're giving us, and that tells us their different properties. There are three different types. I talked about the continuous, the emission, and the absorption, under what conditions they occur. And then Kirchhoff's radiation law is what tells us. When do we get a continuous spectrum? Solid, liquid, dense gas. When do we get an emission? It's a diffuse gas. When do we see absorption? When we look at a continuous spectrum through a cloud of gas. All right. Questions? All right. All right. Well, then we're going to go and talk about the atoms. So how do we get these lines? Because we want to be able to understand a little bit about how we get them. So hopefully some of this is a review to things you've talked about in previous classes or high school or anything else. The general structure of an atom is something like this that is not even close to being to scale. Doing a scale model of an atom is kind of similar to doing a scale model of the solar system. An atom is all empty space. If you wanted to do this to scale, the example that I've seen says for the nucleus, take a little grape seed, put it at the 50 yard line of the football field, the electrons are out in the end zones. In between that is nothing, that's just empty space. So the nucleus where all the material is, is really tiny, extremely tiny. The electrons are orbiting way out there. Obviously we can't really draw anything to that scale because either I'm going to make The nucleus microscopic, or I'm going to have to make this so gigantic that it won't even fit on the screen. So to scale, again, not to scale just like any of our diagrams we show of the solar system are not to scale. Just because, just like the solar system is empty space, so is an atom. Atoms are almost all empty space. And in fact, we'll see later if we crush out all the space Within an atom, if you could get rid of all of this empty space, you could take the sun and you could crush it down to something the size of the city. You're not getting rid of anything. You're taking all the same mass there that's in the sun. You're just getting, all you're doing is getting rid of that empty space. That's how much empty space there is in the sun. You could compress it down to something six, ten miles in size. Sun is, you know, millions of miles, One, one almost one and a half million miles across. That's how much empty space, that's how much of the atom is empty space. We'll come back and talk about those objects in a few weeks. But they are real objects that exist, too. Uh, so, a structure of an atom. It's got a couple, it's got three different things that make up atoms. You've got protons and neutrons, which are the, in the nucleus. The protons have the positive charge. Neutrons are in the nucleus and have no charge, they're neutral. So, those make up the nucleus. Those also make up all the mass of the atom. Electrons have a really tiny mass by comparison. In many ways, it's similar to the sun. Sun's at the center, it's got all the mass of the solar system, 99.8% of it. Actually, I think the uh, nucleus actually beats that. It's got more than that percentage of the mass of the atom. And all the space is taken up by the electrons. All the space in the solar system is taken up by the planets orbiting around it. The sun is just this little thing at the center. So the the nucleus is therefore positively charged. How many protons in a nucleus tell us what the atom is. So in this case, there's three protons. That's lithium. One proton is hydrogen, two is helium, uh, six is carbon, 92 is uranium. So however many protons are in the nucleus will tell us what the atom is. The neutrons will change the type of, not the type of atom, what kind of atom it is, but it'll change the properties of the atom a little bit. And then you have the electrons which have negative charge. Number of protons and number of electrons are generally equal. That means the atom itself is neutral, right? If atoms were all constantly charged, you'd get all sorts of electromagnetic effects, which don't occur. You do get it sometimes, right? You get a nice dry day and you walk around the carpet and touch something metal, you get static electricity shock. That's where you've been, you know, moving electrons from one to another and the electrons then jump back to try to neutralize each other. Uh, The electromagnetic force is many times stronger than gravity. Gravity is actually the weakest of all the forces. But pretty much everything in the universe is neutral, or very close to neutral, or neutral at least on a large scale. So we don't really see it as much. So the electrons orbit and have a negative charge. Um, We also look at a couple of other things. We also look at what we call isotopes or ions. Isotopes I've pictured here. The number of protons tells you what atom it is. So every single one of these is a helium atom. Why? It's got two protons in it. So two protons here and one neutron, two and two, two and three, two and four. If it has two protons, it is going to be a helium nucleus. You can change the number of neutrons. So you can have helium with one neutron. That's a lighter version of helium, because it's only got three particles in its nucleus. You can have helium with two neutrons. That's ordinary, everyday helium, stuff we use to fill balloons. That's the most common type of helium right there. But you can also have heavier versions with five or even six neutrons. Technically, you could make something with two protons and 100 neutrons, but it would be unstable. If you get too far away from them being close to, to a certain level, they'll become unstable and those would be the radioactive elements if you get too far away from having way too many neutrons relative to protons or way too few then it will be unstable and it decays most of the time very very quickly so isotopes are just different number of neutrons you've changed the mass but you haven't changed what the atom is these are all still heliums the chemical properties are exactly the same it's going to behave just like he it's going to behave just like helium the only difference is the mass. So this has less mass. That's the one we're used to. These would, ha- these would be heavier versions of helium. They'd still all float. They're still all gonna be a lot lighter than ordinary air, but they're slightly different masses. That's the only thing that has changed. You haven't changed the charge. The other thing that you can take away or add is the electrons. So if you imagine, this is an example of a helium atom two protons, two neutrons, two electrons. Well, if you add enough energy, it's really hard to rip electrons or neutrons out of there. That takes pretty intense energy. That's nuclear reactions. We'll talk about those probably next week when we talk about the sun, but it's not an easy thing to do. You can't just easily change those. So that's, that's chemical um, reaction, nuclear reactions. Chemical reactions all involve the electrons. Electrons are a lot easier to remove. So you can take electrons, add electrons, or remove electrons from the atom. So often what we'll have in astronomy is that you have something at a really high temperature, there's a lot of energy, things are bouncing around, some electrons will get stripped off the atom, so it disappears. Now we have an atom of helium, it's still helium, two protons, it's still the ordinary mass of helium, the difference is that it's only got one negative charge, so overall this helium has a positive charge. That's the only difference. But what that does change, remember that pattern of spectral lines? When I take one electron away, this helium gives a completely different set of spectral lines than that helium. For hydrogen, it doesn't matter. Hydrogen has one electron. Take one electron away, there's nothing left to form any lines. It's the electrons that we're gonna see that are forming the lines. But helium can have this version, gives you one set of lines, and this version that gives you a second set of lines. It gets worse, right, carbon has six electrons. You can have carbon with all of its electrons, with one removed, two removed, three removed, four removed, five removed. Each of those is a different set of spectral lines. So it's not just quite as easy as finding the 92 naturally occurring elements, because there's all sorts of different ionization states where electrons have been removed. Now some of them are very rare you're not often gonna find things like uranium with 91 electrons removed. That would take a lot of energy. We do see things like iron in the sun's atmosphere with 10 or 12, almost half of its electrons removed. So when you get to really high temperatures, this this does occur and this can be very important. Because if you're looking for the ordinary helium lines here, if most of the helium has been ionized, you're not gonna see them. You're gonna see a different set of helium lines. Still means helium's there, but not the exact, not going to be the same lines that we would have seen. So this is where the lines come in, this is where they actually tell us what things are made up of. And the reason for that is that, talk about the electrons orbit around the nucleus, kind of like planets in the solar system in this model, in reality, it's, when you get into quantum mechanics, it's all probabilities, and you've got electron shells that there are you know, probabilities of being here. But essentially, to think about it, we use what we call the Bohr model, which simply says that the electron can be here at this lowest state, orbiting. can't be any closer. That's the closest it can get to the atom, to the nucleus. It can be in this state, or it can be in 3, or 4, or 5, or 6, but it can't be anywhere in between them. Think about that as the solar system. That's like saying you can orbit where the Earth is or you can orbit where Venus is closer or where Mars is further away, but you can't have an orbit in between them. Well, gravity doesn't do that. For gravity, we could put it, you could imagine a planet right between Mars and Earth. be perfectly reasonable. With atoms, it doesn't work that way with the laws of quantum mechanics. And because of that, the only ways electrons can move is jump from one to the other. So they could jump from here, three, to two, and that's a certain energy difference. There's a certain amount of energy that is given off when it does that. In this case, and I'm looking at these ones here labeled Balmer, this gives off a light of a wavelength of 656 nanometers. You've seen that light several times. That's that red line of hydrogen. So every time you see that, when we, look at ne- when we look at a picture of a nebula that has a red glow to it, we're seeing that line of hydrogen. We're seeing electrons going from the third state into the second state. We can't see the ones going to the first state. These wavelengths, the longest one here is 122 nanometers. That's way off in the ultraviolet. Our eyes can't see it. We can detect it, but our eyes can't see it. So you'll never see these ones that go down to the first level the ones that go to the third level are all too long. They're all off in the infrared part of the spectrum. So in terms of hydrogen, what we can see is this set of lines right here, and that's exactly that pattern that we saw. We saw the red, and you saw kind of a bluish-green line, and then you saw two going out further out into the violet when we looked at the hydrogen atom. Did I have that? I think I went back too far for that. I have to go back to the last section. But that's what we would see when we see that pattern of lines. The fact that atoms behave like this is why we can determine what things are made up of. If the electrons could be anywhere, then you could get any energy difference, you could get any wavelength, and all we'd ever get is a continuous spectrum. We'd never be able to tell what things are made up of. So in this case, we can. We can tell what things are made up of. When we look at a star and we see a line of 656 nanometers, another one at 486, one at 434, and one at 410, Hey, hydrogen's present. We know hydrogen is there. Helium has a different pattern of levels. So every atom and every ionization state has a different pattern of these, so it's always gonna give off different wavelengths. So no other atom is gonna give off this pattern of four lines at all. They might give off some that are similar to one of these or maybe one or two, but they'll never give off that exact same pattern. So it behaves as a fingerprint for the atom that we can tell when we see this pattern of lines or this pattern if we're looking in the ultraviolet or this pattern if we're studying in the infrared, we know that hydrogen is present. So electrons can never be in between these levels. They jump from one, they go from here, they jump to this level, they give off that much energy. A photon, of red light has exactly the amount of energy there. Never 657, never 655. It's exactly 656. So it gives off a very specific wavelength, and that's why we see it as just that specific distinct line. You can also have atoms, uh, uh, electrons that are here. If you excite them up there, that absorbs energy. So if you move to a higher energy level, it takes energy. That's where we get an absorption line, a dark line, because we're taking out those specific wavelengths. If we move to a lower level, that would be the nebula. That's when we are giving off energy. You're starting off with a higher energy when it's been excited, and then as it drops down, it always wants to go back to that ground state. That's the most stable place. That's where the atom always wants to be. It wants to have its electrons in the ground in the lowest state. So when something excites it, whether it be things banging together, whether it is Uh, a high-intensity radiation that may strip those electrons off. The electrons always want to recombine, and as they do, they can jump through a number of different levels of these as they go down. Now which one occurs? Because you can see if you're out at this level, well, you've got three choices. You can either go all the way down to the first level, or you can go to the second, or you can go to the third. This is where quantum mechanics becomes all probabilities. There is a probability. There is some probability that this will happen. So just to make it easy, if there was a 33% chance, then of all of them, right, right, this one in three would go this way, one in three would go this way, one in three would go this way. In some cases, there are situations where it's much more likely that one happens than the other. So it all has to do with probabilities, but that doesn't change the energy levels and the fact that we see very specific lines, and that's what gives us this fingerprint, we get a fingerprint for each element. Only specific wavelengths can be emitted or absorbed. So hydrogen is incapable of absorbing a photon of 500 nanometers or emitting one. If we see a line of 500 nanometers, it's not hydrogen. There is no transition in hydrogen. No matter how you calculate these levels, there's nothing that will ever give you 500. You can get 486. 486 but you can't get 500. You can't get 490. You can't get 510 or 520 or 530. Those won't happen in a hydrogen atom. They might in other atoms. So it gives us that fingerprint. So we see things like this. These are actually two examples. There's that hydrogen that we saw. So there's that first red line of hydrogen. There's the second line getting towards the blue and then off towards the blue. And if you can see, there's actually several fainter ones. It actually goes beyond what we show there. So this is hydrogen. The second one down below it is helium. It's a different fingerprint. If I see this pattern of lines, yeah, it's got a red line, but it's not quite at the same spot where this one was. It's got this really bright yellow line, and then it's got a few, few lines down in the purple and the blues and purples. That pattern of lines would be the fingerprint for helium. So we can tell. If we see this pattern in a star, we know there's hydrogen there, if we see this pattern in a star, we know that there's helium there. Not seeing them doesn't tell you that because you also have to have the temperature right to excite the atoms. It takes a really high temperature, right? Helium, all you know about helium, it's an inert gas, it doesn't do much. Right? If you have a balloon filled with hydrogen and you put a match to it, it bursts into flame, right? If you do that with helium, it just pops. And nothing happens. Helium is very unreactive. So it really gives us, I mean, so depending on exactly what the elements are, it makes that kind of difference, what we can see with the different elements. And we're going to see those different lines as they occur here as to what we get in the stars. When we look at them, we might have to have a very high temperature to ignite, excite helium, really high temperatures. Our sun is not very good at exciting helium. It's only 6,000 degrees. I know that seems hot, but we're going to look at a lot hotter stars. It really takes a much hotter star to excite a significant amount of helium. When we look for helium lines in the star, in the sun, they're really faint. They're there. You can detect some helium, but it also depends on the correct temperature. Hydrogen lines. If you remember, I showed you the spectrum of the sun. The hydrogen lines didn't look any brighter than anything else, but 90% of its atoms are hydrogen. The sun isn't really at the perfect temperature to excite hydrogen either. The only reason we see these lines is because there's so much of it there. That's all they're made up of. So it also depends on the temperatures. The sun is at the perfect temperature to excite things like sodium and calcium. Perfect temperature, it's like that resonant point. All of a sudden, oh, it's beautiful. So even though there's only a little bit of them there, sun is really good at exciting them. So we can see those lines. We don't see this very strong hydrogen line. When we look at other stars, we'll see stars where the hydrogen lines are so dominant that you don't see anything else. They're so strong. When you hit the resonant point for hydrogen, that's all you'll see in the star. If you hit the resonant point for helium, that's really hot. That's really hot stars. Now, in reality, this this gets really complex because this is the actual spectrum of the sun. So there's reds, there's yellows, greens, blues, violets, there's a ton of lines there. So it gets really complex because the sun has lots of elements in it. It's mostly hydrogen and helium, but all those little trace elements are still giving off specific lines. And remember that different ionization, so carbon and carbon with one electron <coughs> off, give, taken off, give you two different sets of lines. So you can find carbon here and you can find ionized carbon. And if we start to look at cooler stars, not a big deal in a star like the sun, but molecules. You can actually get cooler stars that can actually form molecules in their atmosphere. Molecules give you really complicated spectra. They don't just give you lines. They, take out, they will take out whole bands. They will take out a whole big chunk of the spectrum because of the way molecules work in their spectra. They get a lot more complicated. So spectra of cool stars becomes even more complex than that. All right, so so in all, just to give you an idea, it's not quite as simple as what I show you here. Oh, we see this hydrogen. Oh, we see this helium. You've got to dig that out of this. So you can have computers that go through, measure all these wavelengths, and look for specific patterns. Try to find specific patterns of different lines that are present there. All right, so finishing up, again, atoms, protons, neutrons, and electrons make up the atoms. But the electrons orbit but they can only be found in specific energy levels so they can be level one level two level three they can't be at level one and a half or level 2.36 that's not possible they can only be in one level at a time and only in those levels and because of that each atom has its own distinct fingerprint if it weren't for this case we wouldn't have these fingerprints and it wouldn't allow us to determine what things are made up of so what are things made up of in space We can learn that as we talk about when we talk about stars coming up, when we talk about galaxies. We can learn what things are made up of. This is how we're doing it. Any questions there? Otherwise, the last section I wanted to talk about here was on waves, and this is how we're going to learn about how do things move out in space. So how are things moving? Well, a moving wave has an effect on the waves coming from it. So in the direction of the motion, so if we have an object here that's moving, in this case to the left, in the direction of the motion, waves get all bunched up. So the, the source is moving in this direction. Right? If you have a boat moving across the water, you get the waves uh, condensed up in the front, spread out behind it. So, in the direction of motion, they're bunched up. In the opposite that direction, they get spread out more. So, the wavelengths are not one specific wavelength. If this were not moving, right, if you just had something bouncing in the water at a regular rate, you'd get waves coming out at a very regular pattern. They'd be very very symmetrical. Here, it's not, because the object is moving. So, we can get them bunched together. You get a shorter wavelength if you're measuring them here. You can get a longer wavelength if you're measuring here. And it depends on the relative motion of the source or the observer. We don't know who's doing the moving. There's no way to tell that. It can be this thing actually moving, or you could be moving towards that. The measurement's going to be exactly the same. So there's no way to tell who's doing the moving based on this. So if we measure this shift... There's no measurement that I can do that will tell me that difference. Now, it happens for sound waves, too. So if you have here a car going with the horn blaring, if it's sitting still, all the wavelengths are the same. But when it starts moving, they get compressed on the one side and pulled apart on the other side. So nice and even there, as it moves, they get closer and closer together, a shorter wavelength, pulled further apart, a longer wavelength. So you get this. This is what we call the Doppler effect. And this occurs, right? you're familiar with it with sound, if you've ever been standing still, have a fire truck go by, a police car go by with sirens blaring, you hear it coming towards you, much higher pitch. All of a sudden it passes you, lower pitch. So, it, and it occurs, again, either way. You can't tell. If, if, the, if it were sitting still and you were passing it, you'd get the exact same effect. Don't notice that as often. That doesn't happen quite as often, obviously, but that you'd get the exact same thing. So we can't tell who's doing the observation, but you get that real high pitch. the sound waves are compressed as it comes towards you, and they're spread apart as it goes away, as it's going away. Now the, person, the, the people on the truck hear exactly the same tone the whole time. It's not changing. You're going to hear exactly that same tone. They're not flipping a switch, Oh, high pitch. We're passing this person low pitch, right? Does it won't work like that? It's going to be exactly the same. They're hearing the same siren. A tone the entire time. But you're going to hear it different because of that motion. And this is going to be important because this applies not just to sound waves, but to light waves as well. So light rays can get shifted as well depending on the motions. Now we can measure the Doppler effect as the example shown here. Um, here's the Doppler, a little radar signal, send it out to the airplane, you bounce the signal off of it, detect back how it shifted. So you send a specific wavelength out. It bounces off the plane. That plane moving, will it change that? Because the plane's moving, it'll adjust that signal. So if it's moving towards you, it's going to come back at a shorter wavelength. So it'll be a shorter wavelength. That would mean it's moving towards you in general. It doesn't mean it's moving straight towards you. It means, remember, velocity has a direction to it. So velocity, it doesn't mean it's necessarily coming straight at you. You can split that up. The velocity of the plane is the red arrow here. And you can split that up into two parts. So the plane is getting closer to the radar station over time as it moves this way. So as it goes here, it's slowly getting closer and closer to that radar station. That's this part of its velocity. That's what the Doppler shift measures. The part of it going towards you or away from you. It does not mean because the radar station measures a blue shift, a shift towards shorter wavelengths, that it's on a collision course. It just means that part of its velocity is in the general direction. And in the, as is the case with the airplane, as it flies by, when it gets to the other side, right, its velocity might still be the same if it was going at the same speed the whole way, but now it's getting further and further away from the radar station, so it's going to be a red shift. So the green line here was coming towards the radar station here, here it's going away. But that's the only portion that it can measure. It can't measure the true velocity. It does not measure the velocity as it goes across. And in fact, at this one instant, when it's passing right across the line of sight of the radar dish, the radar dish will get a zero. It's not moving. Velocity of that plane is zero. And it will change. It would change as you got here. It would get your highest measurement when it's furthest away. So, I mean, same thing with a uh, radar trap on the highway. If you're driving right by and an officer wants to shoot his radar gun as you're passing right by him, you're going zero you You're going zero relative to the radar gun. Of course, that's not when they're measuring your speed. They're doing it when you're coming towards them or going away, but it, does, it will change. You'll get the most accurate measurement when you're coming straight towards or straight away from something. You can sometimes see this, this change on the highway I notice it, I don't know if anybody else ever does, where they have the speed, uh, like the construction zone, you know, speed limit such, your speed this much. Watch it, if you have yourself on cruise control as you're going in there, watch it. You'll notice as you get closer and closer to it, it might say you're going 55, but when you get real close, it'll go down, tick down to 54, 53. That's because you're getting closer to that angle, that angle is changing and it's getting a different measurement. If you could measure it and you could see it as you were passing by it, it would say zero. And then it would increase again as you head off towards the other side. So it's only that portion of the velocity that we can measure. So when we look at stars, and you say that a star is coming towards us or away from us, it's not collision course, it's just, well, this one is heading, right now it's getting slowly closer to us, and eventually at some point a star would do the same thing to Earth. It might be traveling in this direction, so here it might be coming, in our, we might measure it as a blue shift coming towards us, But thousands of years from now, we might measure it as a redshift is moving away from us. It's just as it's moving across the sky. But we can only measure that one portion. We need other methods to be able to determine the actual velocity. So if you really want to determine the velocity, you also have to determine not just the green arrow but the blue arrow. How is it moving? Across the line of sight. That's something that's a little more difficult to figure out. So what we see with light is something like this. We can see a redshift or a blue shift, and I know I've been using that terms before I defined them, so I apologize, but redshift simply means that an object that is moving away, or us moving away from the object, remember you can't tell the difference, will have its line shifted towards longer wavelengths. Doesn't mean it looks red. Call it a redshift just because everything is shifted towards longer wavelengths. So here's that spectrum, getting sick of seeing it. There's hydrogen again, red line, bluish, dark blue, and out into the purple. Well, if you had a star that was moving away from us and you measured the hydrogen lines, you might see something like this. So it shifted a little bit towards the red. It doesn't change the colors of the lines at all. This red one is still red. It changes the wavelength a little bit. Something else we have to take into account when we're trying to figure out compositions. If stars are moving and everything is moving relative to everything else, we have to look for that. So really, instead of looking for the wavelengths, you look for the patterns. You look for this pattern of three lines, which stays the same. But everything here, each line is shifted a little bit towards the red. This one might be off and slightly into the green now. This one is towards a little further off into the blue. Doesn't make anything look red but it shifts everything towards longer wavelengths. A blue shift simply means something's getting closer to you. Doesn't mean it appears blue, just that you have those same wavelengths, but now instead of being here where they're supposed to be, they're all shifted a little bit towards shorter wavelengths. So red shift, something is, if you see a red shift, something is moving away. If you see a blue shift, shift towards shorter wavelengths, then something is moving towards you. And again, the same thing applies here. Now, it's moving across space, so it might be coming close to you now, but thousands of years from now, it might be, end up moving away from you. So it doesn't mean, again, you're on a collision course. If we say something is a blue shift, it does not mean we're on a collision course with something. The greater the velocity, the, larger, the faster that's moving, the larger the shift. I'm sorry, yeah. Yes. It would. So technically, if you were driving fast enough towards a red light, it would be blue. However, you've got to be going more than half the speed of light. So you know, if you want to get out of the ticket for running the red light, then you're going to get a heck of a speeding ticket <laughs> if you're going half the speed. You know. So you're going to get a very big, big speeding ticket if they're going to say, well, sure, we'll give that ticket if we can give you a speeding ticket for half the speed of light. <laughs> You may never drive again, right? Yeah? You can just get out of it with the like then. You can just say, you can do a calculation and say you were at zero when, when they clocked your... If they were passing you, yeah, but, okay. but... but if they're, But you normally, where are they? They're as you come around a curve, so you're coming straight towards them. Yeah, gotcha. So and And if you notice with those ones I mentioned at the side of the road, it doesn't change until you get really close to it. The approximation is really good unless you're just passing it. Mm-hmm. So... If anything, they're slightly underestimating your speed, but unless they, if they get you pretty well on, it's gonna be very accurate to within a mile an hour or so. But yeah, they'd have to be coming right, so yeah, if but if they're coming right by, you know, if you're, you're the officer and I'm driving by right here, and you take that right now, yeah, I'm, I'm moving zero. You're gonna get a zero radar reading. <laughs> but however, when I'm over here, and I'm coming towards you, now I'm still going this way, you're gonna get a pretty accurate reading of how fast I'm going. It's gotta be, it's when I get close. Maybe at this value, you'd actually get something under, but for the most part, you know what the angle is. It's a pretty, uh, pretty straight on for most, most cases there. All right, so, now the fun part, right? The calculation, and yes, there's an example of this, so review this, you've got this, make sure you have this, print out the slides if you wanna review, because there is a calculation like this on the uh, homework. But I'm gonna go through an example of it here. But this gives us the way to calculate a velocity. We can use what we call the Doppler equation. And I'm defining all the terms here. V is the velocity. And again, it's the radial, only the part that's going towards you or away from you. It's not the true velocity of it. C, speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. Constant, we know what that is. That's always the speed of light doesn't matter whether we're measuring visible light or ultraviolet or gamma rays, whatever we're measuring. The speed of light is still 300,000 kilometers per second. Then there's the change in wavelength. Uh, The Greek letter lambda, upside down Y there, is what we use for wavelength, a variable we use for wavelength. And the capital letter delta, the triangle, just means a change. So the change in wavelength, the difference between what the wavelength should be and what you measure. How much is it shifted? And then lambda, again, with the little zero on it, is where it's supposed to be. That's, the, that's where if you measured it in the laboratory for that line, that's exactly where it should be. So the numbers that you know, right, C is given. That's the velocity of light. That doesn't change. The wavelength of the object, whatever that, whatever that wavelength is, whatever that line that you're looking at, has a very specific wavelength where it's supposed to be. So what you need is the change in wavelength, what is the difference? That's what you'd measure. Then you know three of the four things and you can calculate the velocity. So you'll you'll know these two on the bottom. You measure this one here and that will give you the velocity of the object. How fast is it actually moving? So again, these are just the definitions of what everything is. Again, V, the radial velocity, C, speed of light, and the lambdas are the wavelengths. One is the change in wavelength. How far is it shifted? And the wavelength here is what we, what we should measure. Now, I did say we did have those, so you can get a pretty good shift. And the one I mentioned actually happens. I talked about, you know, not really. I can, can't drive th- towards a stoplight fast enough for the red light to shift to blue. However, there are objects out there in the distant universe, quasars, that are moving so far away from us that light lines that would be ultraviolet, are in the visible part of the spectrum. So you can get that kind of shift occur, not here on Earth, but you can get that kind of shift that actually does occur. And when we get to the end of the class and we talk about quasars, that's something that took us a long time to be able to recognize them. And we had seen them for a long time, we didn't know what they were, until someone it's finally hit someone that, hey, wait a second, these are the hydrogen lines that should be ultraviolet, but they're in the visible part. So you can shift things that much, just, you know, we don't have vehicles that are going to go close. To, you know, even the highest, highest jet aircraft, highest fastest spacecraft, don't come anything close to the speed of light. So in terms of doing the calculation here, I'll keep the equation up there, um, we have a spectral line of a star is observed to have a wavelength of something, 656.5 nanometers. It's supposed to be at 656.3 nanometers. So what is the velocity of approach or recession? Again, if the math makes you freeze up, answer the first part of the question first. Is it approaching or receding? Well, it's observed to be at a longer wavelength than it should be. That's a redshift. It's moving away. So, even, and I know some of, you, some, of you, some of you don't mind the math, some of you can't stand it, um, but even if you can't get to the question or that just throws you, at least answer that part of it. At least answer. Hey, you know, I know it's. I know it's. It is receding from. I know it is um, receding because it shifted towards a longer wavelength. So, easy part to do. Now, what we can do is take this equation and solve for the velocity. Essentially, we just multiply by c. So it's c multiplied by the change in wavelength divided by what the wavelength is supposed to be. c, speed of light, three hundred thousand kilometers per second. You multiply that by the 0.2 nanometers and then divide by 656.3, what the wavelength is supposed to be, and you would find that the velocity is, therefore, 91.4 kilometers per second. Now, that's pretty fast. 100 kilometers per hour is comparable to 60-some miles per hour, but this is per second. So you can think of that as close to, you know, 60 miles per second. Much, much less than the speed of light. But an incredibly fast speed it takes to get this little tiny shift. You've only shifted things two-tenths of a nanometer, two-tenths of a billionth of a meter. So you have a very, very... Small shift, that's why I say you have to really be going fast. You have to really be getting close to the speed of light for this to become any major change. I mean, this is already a lot faster than speeds we're used to thinking about. 60 miles a second, Right? that's pretty darn fast to try to move. But again, very, very small compared to the speed of light. Still a very tiny amount compared to 300,000 kilometers per second. The one I give you on the homework is very similar. In fact, the only thing I've done is change the wavelengths here that you use. So you're using a different set of, different set of wavelengths, but you're going to do the same kind of, same, same thing. That's your equation. You take the speed of light, look at, find out whatever the difference is, divide it by what it's supposed to be, and that will give you the velocity. So same general calculation, but you're just using slightly different numbers for you there. All right. Questions as we finish up this chapter? Because just summarizing again, we talked about how the waves are affected by the motion. So these lines that told us the composition can now tell us the velocities as well. We can figure out how things are moving. And again, I stated here, a red shift shows an object moving away. Blue shift shows an object moving towards the observer. Or we're moving towards it. So if we take a star and we measure it and say it has a blue shift, I cannot tell you whether that star is moving towards us or we're moving towards it or some combination of the two. We just know that in general we're getting closer and closer together. Same thing with a red shift. It doesn't mean it's moving directly away or we're moving away. Those two will give you exactly the same measurement. And the Doppler effect can be used to determine, this is how we determine velocities of things. All right, so questions we finish up that chapter and get ready we won't we'll get started on this week's chapter which should put us right back on pretty close to back on track after this week. We won't get through obviously all of 6 this time, but I want to talk a little bit about it at least. No other question. 5 is usually the the most hated chapter. It's got the most physics and chemistry and things in it, so Hopefully we've gotten through the worst of it and heading towards uh, different, heading towards a little more interesting thing. This is actually our last of the introductory chapters to telescopes. Once we get through telescopes, then we start talking about astronomical objects, finally. We'll talk about the sun and the stars and the galaxies, which we'll be spending the rest of the class uh, talking about those. So, telescopes. And the first section here that I'm going to start on, I probably won't get all the way through this first section today, but I wanna talk a little bit about telescopes. And a telescope is just an advi- a device used to observe astronomical objects. Uh, there are a number of different types of them that we'll look at. Essentially, it gathers light. That can be visible light, that can be infrared, that can be ultraviolet, that can be X-rays, that can be gamma rays, that can be radio waves, infrared, you know, all the different wavelengths. Some are designed, I mean, A telescope design is different. The one that I'm showing you there is designed for visible light and would collect visible light. And there's actually multiple telescopes there. You can have one main telescope, and you can have little finder scopes that have a wider field of view to help you narrow into your your object. The the key thing about a telescope is that it's bigger than your eye. The size of the lens or the mirror here is many times the size of your eye. That allows you to see fainter objects. You can collect more light. So this is collecting more light from the sun and the pupil, than the star from a star than the pupil of your eye is. So it allows us to see fainter objects. So, some of the earliest telescopes, and these are actually pictures of some of Galileo's telescopes uh, from a museum in Italy. Very uh, small by today's standards. Some of the telescopes we'll talk about today, or today and then next time, are many times this size. But Galileo remember talked about before did not invent the telescope It was actually invented a couple years before and he heard of the invention never saw one but he heard of it and made his own two years later and he gets credit for the telescope and using the telescope because he was the first one that we know of who observed the sky how do we know well he recorded his observations and published them whether anybody else decided to look at the sky and said, oh, cool, look at the moon. moon looks cool through a telescope but never recorded anything. You know, we have no way of knowing. So he gets the credit because he was the one who actually recorded and published his observations. But all he did was grind a couple of little lenses, one there and one there, so one at each end, and put them in a long tube. Sounds like a long spyglass. Not, not adjustable, pretty much just one fixed focus to be able to look at these objects. So he could then study things that were fainter than you could see otherwise. He could see more detail. And that was the big jump forward in astronomy, big jump forward in the 1600s, because previous to this time, everything was done with the eye. Whatever you could see, you could see. That was it. So you could see patterns of stars, you could see constellations, you could see the moon, you could see the sun, but you couldn't see a lot of other other things in detail, that we'll be able to see later on. Now in terms of types of telescopes, there are two main classes. Again, I'm only looking at optical telescopes in this first section. Next later sections, we'll talk about radio telescopes. So everything I'm flying flying to here is really focusing on optical telescopes. The visible light, red through violet, that's what we're talking about looking at. So you can have a refracting telescope which uses lenses or a reflecting telescope that uses mirrors. So there's two different types that you can use. Galileo's were refracting telescopes. He had a lens up here, another lens down here. So light travels through the tube. You look at one end, hold it up, look through one end, and you can see the image of what you're looking at, whether it be the moon, whether it be Venus or Jupiter, or any other object that he's looking at. Nice thing about that is that the light path goes straight through. There's nothing to block it. A reflecting telescope uses mirrors. So you have a big mirror down here, so light comes in, bounces off the mirror. Not a flat mirror like we use, right? a curved mirror to actually focus the light. So there's a curved mirror down here, light bounces off that and heads back up and reaches a focus again, just like it reached a focus here, and you could look at it. You can put an eyepiece right here and look at that and be able to see the object. Problem with this, is that your head kind of gets in the way. Especially if you have a smaller telescope, if I want to put my head here and look down, then I'm blocking all the starlight. If we're talking about a telescope that's you know, Galileo-size or even something that's four or five inches, if I try to put my head in there to look at the image, the light can't get around my head. So what is done is a couple of different things, and there's two different examples shown here. One is to put a small lens here, a small mirror, that just bounces that light out to an eyepiece. So it blocks a little bit of the space, but not, a ho- not as much as my head would. And sends the light out to the eyepiece here. The other one over here kind of has another mirror that bounces it straight back down through a small hole, so you can look down at the end here. So a couple different ways, and I'll look at, we'll look at those here in... Uh, is it the next? Try to remember. Actually, I'll look at them in a little more detail here and specify what I mean uh, by those different types. So... There are a couple of different types that we use. The prime focus would be the perfect one, right? Light bounces off the mirror, comes back up to a focus, but for most small telescope, it's not useful. You can't put a detector there. You can't put your head there to be able to see. For a big telescope, it doesn't matter so much. If you're talking about a telescope that is five meters in size, well, five meters is, you know what, five yards, 15, you got, you're, you know, you're looking at a pretty big mirror. You can actually put an observer in a little observing cage up there that's not too big that won't block out a big percentage of the light. So there are cases of very large telescopes where there is an observing cage where the, where the astronomer, not as much anymore, but used to be able to ride with the telescope. You could sit up there all night in the cold if you wanted to and observe directly at the prime focus. Not done so much anymore. For the most part now, astronomers will sit in the nice warm control room instead of out in the bitterly cold weather because those nice clear nights also tend to be rather cold. But it is a prime focus. You can do that. You can put instruments up there as well. Anything else for a reflecting telescope, you've got to bounce the light. You've got to get the light to some place where you can see it. So you can have the cassegrain focus, which is the middle one here, The light comes down bounces off a little secondary mirror here and then down through a hole in the primary mirror little hole in the primary mirror kind of greatly exaggerated here it doesn't have to be that big doesn't really block out much of the collecting area again if you've got that telescope that is many meters in size and you take a little hole that's you know even a few inches it's not it's not a big chunk of the mirror that you're losing and in fact, a lot of the light's blocked anyway, right? If you've got to have to put a mirror here, then you're not going to get any light hitting that in any case. The other one that's done is a Newtonian. You can guess who gave us that telescope? That type of telescope? That was Isaac Newton. Yep. That was Isaac Newton's design. Uh, the secondary mirror takes it out to the side. Which one depends really on the type of telescope and what you're doing. This is a convenient one for being able to view. Because it often puts the eyepiece at a real convenient spot for you. you know, so you're not having to bend over, even if you're pointing at something straight up in the sky, your eyepiece could be right there at eye level. Whereas if you're using a cast of grain focus and we're pointing straight up, then your eyepiece is there, and depending on the structure of your telescope, you know, I've used some where you've had to kind of if you're looking straight up, you've got to lie down on the ground to look through the eyepiece. So it depends on really what you want to do with it for mini K if you're not looking towards the top of the sky this works either one will work just fine the nice thing with this one for astronomers is that all the weight is down at the bottom here and that's where you're going to put your instrument you're collecting the light right at the bottom by your mirror so you could put a heavy instrument down here it's not going to put any unusual forces on your on your telescope because you've got all the extra weight down here where all the weight is already if I try to put a mass piece of massive equipment on the at the Newtonian focus, then you can imagine I've got all this weight here, it's putting an extra torque on the telescope, trying to twist it, making it harder to keep pointed in the same direction. For just looking through it, it doesn't matter. But in terms of putting a big heavy camera on a small telescope, or a big astronomical instrument on a telescope, this one for professional astronomers is what's used for most professional telescopes now. But again, most astronomers don't look through telescopes. It's all done with the detector, and they're sitting in the nice, warm control room uh, observing, using uh, the computers to do the observing. All right, so telescopes um, have three specific powers. Everything comes in threes, almost everything. We get three, three Kirchhoff's three laws, Newton's three laws, uh, Kepler's three laws. Well, there's three powers of a telescope, too. So telescopes have three different powers, and... Some are more important than others, and some are uh, less important. So light-gathering power is one of the primary ones, and it depends on how big the mirror is. Our eye can collect a certain amount of light depending on the size of your pupil. That's how much light it can let in, whatever fits through that little uh, area. Uh, For a large uh, telescope, it depends on how big the lens or the mirror is. So if that mirror is a meter across, That's a lot more area than your eye. You're seeing things that are a lot fainter. You're gathering more light into that. So it depends actually on the square of the size of the lens or the mirror. So if you had a one-meter telescope and you had a five-meter telescope, it doesn't collect five times the light. Area of a circle, pi r squared. So if you actually calculate the areas, it'll be five times five, five squared, 25 times more light. So a telescope five times bigger gives you 25 times the light-gathering power. You can see objects that are 25 times fainter. It's a big, big difference as to what you can see. So you can see objects that are a lot fainter if you have a bigger telescope. So we're going to see some of them. Probably I'll show them. I'll get to that portion um, next time. But it'll show a lot of... You'll see some of these telescopes are 10, 12 meters in size. They're getting tremendous. I mean, you have telescope mirrors that would not fit in this classroom. That's some of the largest, some of the largest ones for optical telescopes. So why do we keep making them bigger and bigger? This, to increase the light gathering power. The second one is the resolving power. Depends on the size of the primary lens or the mirror. So how big is your lens? How big is your mirror that's collecting the light? A larger lens or mirror will have a smaller resolution. That's good. You want smaller resolution. That means you're seeing finer detail. So if I'm looking at the moon, I can see smaller craters. I can see objects that are closer together because I have a real high resolution. I can see more detail. So a larger telescope has a smaller resolution, which is a good thing. gives you better resolving power. So in both of these first two cases, we want big telescopes. Big telescope gives us great light-gathering power and gives us great resolving power. The third one is the magnifying power. This, I've already told you, hint, it's the least important one. So if you're looking to buy a telescope and it's advertising its magnifying power, it's probably not the one to worry about. Because magnifying power, it's, it's great, yeah, you want to magnify things, but it can be... A magnification doesn't help with either of these two. And in fact, the magnifying power does not depend on how big the telescope is. It depends on what we call the focal lengths of the telescope and the eyepiece. So focal length of the telescope, how how far it has to travel to bring that light to a focus, and the focal length of the eyepiece. Well, magnifying power can be changed by changing the eyepiece. So if you get a more powerful eyepiece, you can increase the magnification. So that can be changed after the fact. These can't, right? Once you've got a telescope you've got a 10-inch telescope, it's always going to have the same light-gathering power and same resolving power, but you could change the magnifying power. So that's the least important. It also does not increase either of these other two. So if you can only see so much detail through your small image, you can enlarge it, but you don't see any more detail. It doesn't give you any better resolution. So a small blurry, a small image that's fuzzy is now a big fuzzy image you're not gonna get any more detail to it than you saw. You're just making what you had bigger. So if you saw the crater that was a little tiny dot there, it would now be a bigger dot. You're not getting any more resolution out of it. You're also not getting any more light. What that means is if you try to put too high of a magnification on a small telescope, your image disappears. Why? Because it's gotten spread out. You've taken the same amount of light that was concentrated in this little teeny tiny image of Saturn, which looks cute. You can see the little disc in the rings and all that stuff. But if I try to make it 10 times bigger, I don't have any more light, so I'm spreading it out over a bigger area, the same amount of light that I had. It gets fainter and fainter and fainter the more I try to magnify it. So eventually, you're not going to be able to see it at all because you can't increase the light-gathering power. You have to change the telescope to do that. You have to get a telescope that's larger, that's gathering more light, to be able to get more detail. So magnifying power is great, but of these, you know, if you're looking for a telescope and looking to buy a telescope, you want to look at these two. And those are really the size of the telescope. So the two things I tell people looking to buy a telescope, you want the biggest one you can afford and that you'll use. So if you're wealthy and you can afford a really big telescope but it's going to take you an hour and a half to set it up, are you going to bother using it? Probably not very often. You might be better off getting something that you can set up in five minutes. And there are some. You can just put them out, put them out on a table, put them out on a stand there, point them up, and use them. That you're probably more likely to use than buying a, oh, I can buy this big 20-inch telescope with all these fancy features, but it takes me an hour to get it all set up. I'm never going to bother doing that or only do it on rare occasions. So those are the two things I tell people. You want to get the bigger. So if you have a choice between two, you know, a six-inch telescope and a four-inch telescope, the six is going to let you see more detail, is going to give you better on both of these. So if they're comparable, otherwise you want to go with the larger one that you're able to afford. But you want something that's, again, look for ease of setup. How easy it is it to set up and be able to use? All right, uh, last thing I want to do... No, I've got two things with limitate. I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I've got a couple slides on limitations that I want to do, and I probably won't squeeze those through in the next four or five minutes. So I'll go ahead and stop there, and we will pick up on Wednesday and hopefully get through most of telescopes, which will get us right about on, back on track. So don't forget, if you have article reviews, if you're turning it in now, don't forget it before you leave. If you're going to submit it up on... Um, D2L, just make sure I get it before 6 o'clock tomorrow morning so that I can get those graded for you. All right.